0: You know, for those days after Christmas, you know, you, you get to that point where you just walk into the fridge and, you know, you just hack a big piece off and walk around the house eating it. Um, and then you get hammed out about, you know, sort of the 12th, 13th of January. It's about that point where you're like, that's it. I'm, I'm done with your ham. Can't do any more.
1: This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Simplicity is one of the most beautiful yet challenging things to get right in food. When it comes to food, the sophistication and celebration in simplicity means there is no place to hide on the plate. To find produce at its optimum, then let it shine on the plate without too much interference takes bravery, knowledge and years of dedication to master. As the right-hand man to one of Australia's most celebrated chefs, Corey Costello is an unsung, talented chef with an uncanny ability to reveal the true character of quality ingredients. Corey, Rockpool Bar and Grill is one of the country's best restaurants, but it's also one of the largest. It's huge. Like how many staff do you have and what does it take to run a restaurant of that size?
0: Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a beast. It's, uh, it sort of sits 200 guests at a time, so we can do anything up to 350, you know, 400 covers if you include the bar area. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a big it's a big restaurant. Um Back in the day, we used to have about forty-five chefs, and now we've got about thirty. Um, and uh, yeah, it's probably about twenty on a, twenty on per shift, and that you know that includes a butcher and a, um, a fishmonger and a baker. Uh, you know, and then all the different sections of a regular kitchen. So it is a, one of the old school kitchens though, where we have you know a vegetable chef, we have a, a pasta chef, we have a larder section with you know three or four staff in it, and um. Yeah, we have the, the fish chef and a, a a grill chef and then a plating chef. So yeah, it's it's um it's a big it's a big operation. Uh, lots of sections.
1: It's a huge it's a huge kitchen as well. And I know there's not just the kitchen downstairs in in the restaurant. How do you manage all of those different sections to ensure the the mass that high standard that you set?
0: I have the most amazing staff you could ever imagine. Um, Santiago who's the head chef there he's he's been there um for 11 years uh you know just shy of what I was um my other sous chef there Joel he's been there for 11 years um and then my other sous chef Perry he's been there for five years so um six years actually so yeah we're pretty we're a pretty tight knit group we uh we do a lot of stuff together um we we know each other very very well and those guys are so committed, um, to the to the cause. And we had very good training from the likes of khan Dennis and Angel Fernandez and obviously from Neil Perry. So, you know, Neil Neil's a he's he is who he is and he's very um yeah, he's intoxicating when you talk to him. Um so yeah, he he's just one of those people that you you fall in love with and he, he just, he, he makes, he sucks you into the dream and, and you, you follow it.
1: Having staff that stick around that long is, is pretty rare. A lot of chefs move around all the time to get new skills and obtain new experiences. Why do you think chefs are staying there for so long?
0: Um, well, we try and, you know, do things. If we start to get a little bit stale, we'll do things like, okay, well let's try and make this or let's try and have a crack at, you know, a, the, the cheese making episodes over the last few years have been a lot of trial and error, and you know, making our own, our own feta and goat's curd and um, different stuff like that. Well, we've got goat's curd nailed down now, and that's that's a pretty easy one. But you know, just keeping everyone um, keeping everyone entertained with with changing little bits and pieces like that, because our menus so large and it doesn't really change a lot of the you know we change seasonally with different bits and pieces and we get ingredients in every day and we might play around with them but we've got the core part of the menu that doesn't really change um but yeah we try and i mean you know we get we do get boxes of goods delivered every day that you don't know what's coming sometimes and it's like well we need to make some side dishes out of this or a little entree, so we do have a lot of flexibility with our supplies and because we write the menu once a day, we do have that, um,
1: yeah, just that flexibility for some of the chefs to play around with. There's a Rockpool Bar and Grill in Melbourne and also in Perth. Do you guys sort of work together to keep the identity similar?
0: I'm actually in Melbourne at the moment. <laughs> so I'm, uh, in, oh, wow. I'm, in, I'm in the Crown Towers having a look down the, um, the very, very beautiful um, Yarra, I think. It's very brown, so it's not that beautiful, but... <laughs> different to Sydney <laughs> sorry Melbourne people but yeah it's not as pretty um, yeah so we we try and keep the um, the restaurants to have their own identities and you know use all the local things that happen that, that all, all the produce that comes in um, but you know with with today's um, today well, it's, it's pretty hard at the moment with all the flights and everything but we have a lot of supplies that we use uh, that we use for all three venues. So we'll, um, you know, we'll, we'll make, you know, we'll, we'll talk to those suppliers, fishermen, farmers, um, you know, cattle grazers and things like that. And we'll, we'll talk to them directly and we'll try and get them to, to get us products, um, in all three venues. So yeah, this morning I've spent, spent on the time on the phone to Heidi and Parva Walker from, um, from up in Walker's, uh, seafoods up in been Bar and, Ordering whole swordfish to, to break down at the venues, so um, yeah, and getting whole tunas, and because we've got the other restaurants that are attached to them, with um, with Rosetta and Spice Temple, all three of uh, you know are, are pretty close. We can sort of you know rip a loin off each and then use them up, and then the next day do the same thing, or you know. So it does give us working for a big company has its um, ups and downs, but one of the ups is that you do get to get some amazing produce direct from the whole, you know, and, and not from a wholesaler, but direct from the, from the grower, so or the, for the
1: fishermen. You mentioned you're in one of those rare positions to actually have an on-site butcher. Not many restaurants have that. And a, and a butchery section, you get in whole pigs and high animals. Can you tell us about the process there and, and what you guys do with the meat program?
0: Yeah, well, once again, that was, you know, one of those things, it's like, you know, the chefs are starting to get a little bit bored. Um, And, you know, at home on the weekends, I make, um, not on on weekends, but once a year, I make charcuterie, um, some salamis and and stuff with the boys uh, in the garage. And after I started doing it at home on the weekends, in the winter, I thought, well, we should do this in the kitchen. So, We've always bought in whole pigs, but we would break them down in a different way and use them for things that weren't charcuterie. But then we started to try and master the arts of it, uh, which is a lot of trial and error. But yeah, so we've got we've got pretty good at it over the years. Um, so we use the legs um, for to making sort of traditional leg ham, so smoked ham, uh, like a fourteen day or eleven day brine, and depending how big it is and um, yeah, the cooking process and then smoking them. Uh, we tried smoking them above just our fire, but it didn't work. You really need that intense sort of wood chip smoke. Um, the, the subtle smoke off the fire just gets a bit acrid after you leave it up there for a bit wa- along, and it' a bit warm. So not ideal. So, yeah, we do that with the legs and with the shoulders. We make some lovely chorizo, which is a um, Angel Fernandez's recipe. And then um, we have uh, – some pork and sort of fennel sausages that we also make. And then we use the bellies for a dish on the menu. We cure some of them. Um, and yeah, we make some salamis too out of some of the shoulders when we don't have the, uh, when we don't have the sausages in need. So it's, um it's a bit of fun and you know, the guys really get into it. Um, we try and, you know, when you get the whole pig in, it's good watching, watching the, you know, the, the younger chefs try and break it down and then, uh, watching the butcher do it in about one-tenth of the time. Um, and then you feel like you're really, you know, you're not a very good chef when he holds it up and just, you know, holds the hind quarter up and just goes bang, bang, bang. And five knife moves, he's taken, you know, the legs off and the shoulders off. Um, and then you've just got this, you know, six parts to a pig. You're like, wow. wow. And then you do it, it's like 20 minutes. <laughs> Fuck. You're really quick. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, so it's um one of those things. It's uh, Yeah, it's just fun playing around with that sort of stuff. We do brisolas as, as well with the fronts of the – um with the rounds off the – and the drellos off the um David Blackmore Wagyu bodies we get. So the guys have a bit of fun playing around with some of the charcuterie. Um, and it's a great product and it just gets you really involved in the food. It gets you sort of so that you, you feel like you're a, very much a part of it.
1: I just want to go back a little bit because I just find it astounding that you started making charcuterie in your garage and it's led to Rockpool Group producing their own in the kitchen. Can you take us back to <laughs> to when you started trying to make it in the garage?
0: Yeah, my next door neighbour, uh, not a very Italian or you know European bloke at all. He's got red hair and he's you know born in Chatswood, um, <laughs> but he and he's a cabinet maker, so he's got nothing to do with food. But um, he wanted to. Um, he he bought a pig off a, a, a saw sharpener that sharpens his blades for his um, cabinet making. Um, who has a hobby farm, um, and the guy said that he he um, uses the pigs and takes parts of it and then makes a little bit of salami's out of the shoulders. And so we thought it'd be a good idea to go up there and get one of these pigs. So we had to, you know, go up there. And I've never I've never touched a gun in my life, but my mate's quite a redneck. He's been to the states a lot, so. He knew what to do so we had to go and call the pig over and get it to the fence and you know give it a happy ending and uh and uh that was it so we hung it up and gutted it and did all that and bled it uh, it's very warm a, a dead pig I wasn't expecting it to be so warm when I first did it and they said well you gut it you're a chef so I didn't know what I was doing but um yeah, we made, uh, we made some sausages out of parts of it and we, uh, you know, cooked, cooked some of it and then made, made a very, very small batch, about four kilos of salamis and hung them up in the garage and they were great. And then the next year we did the same thing at the same time of year. So you always do it um, around the middle of July or the, the start of the end of July, just depending on the weather. You don't want it to get too warm during the day. So you need it to be this, so that the temperature doesn't get above sort of 15 or 18 degrees. Um, cause if you hang them up in the garage, you don't want them to dry out too quick. And if it's a bit too warm, they, um, you know, they, they can dry out very quickly. So they get hard casing and that's, um, we've learned the hard way. Um, the first year, I think we did four or five kilos. The next year we did 10 kilos. And the next year after that, we we're like, Oh, we are experts at this. Now we'll do 40 kilos. Um, we threw 40 kilos pretty much in the bin, um, Yeah, it wasn't great. And um, that year as as well, we decided to drink quite heavily whilst making them, um, which everyone said that that's the reason they were bad, but it wasn't. It was actually the the drying process and we didn't have enough humidity in the room and we didn't, um, it was a bit warm um, and it sort of dried the room out. So yeah, child's humidifiers and what we use now um, and stick one in the room and test it. Yeah. So this year we made um, 120 kilos, which was great. We had a big, a whole bunch of different families and everyone gets together and I think my girlfriend was, was pretty hammered by about 1030 in the morning. Cause she made Aperol spritzes and then just kept going. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a good day. The kids get involved and everyone has a bit of a mix and you know, your hands feel like ice cubes because you have to keep the meat so cold. Um, so you do it in a crack of dawn, six or seven in the morning and, we did it at my mate's house up at Duffy's Forest. So it's got a lot of land and a big garage and it was nice and cold and a wintry morning. So it was good and then hung them up and, yeah, you wait three weeks and then uh, you're ready to go. But they're best after about six months. So I haven't eaten any of mine yet. Some of my mates have all started hoeing into theirs. But mine are um, mine are still sitting in the cool room at Rockpool, actually. So we'll, uh, I'm looking forward. I'll probably give a few out for Christmas presents.
1: Wow you mentioned that there's been a lot of hits and misses and sort of challenging moments to try and get it right. What do you think makes great charcuterie? Uh, I don't know, way. Eh?
0: <laughs> like it's every year it's different, so I don't know. Like you follow the same recipes and you do the same thing and it's just every year, like some years they're a bit chewier and then some years they're a bit drier and some years they've got like a really, like the fermented, um, you know, the, the lactic um, taste is, is really strong, um, so they're quite acidic. Um, and I think all of them I like, I think if it's just, if it's well made in the fact that it's not too salty and, and it's salty enough, that's probably the key thing. And then the texture of it, if it's not mealy, it can't be mealy. Um, it's sort of got a set. Um, yeah. So it's just one of those things every year we make it and it's a little bit different. So we, we make two types when we do it. We do like a Spanish, um, chorizo version and then we do uh, like a classic italian version with fennel and, and chili through it like chili flakes um red wine you we drink as much red wine Everyone, ever and the rule is you've got to drink as much red wine and white wine that you put into them whilst you're making them so if you put we had 10 bottles that we needed to to do so we had we had five bottles of the of the red and then we have a big lunch at the end of it and so you take some of the meat out um and you you, you fry up all the meat and then toss it through pasta and when you've done, you all have this big pasta meal with the salami meat in a fresh form. So it's just like sausages. So you have a beautiful sausage pasta, and um, if you're if you're a real good wog, you've got the pasada that you made in summer, and you tip a bottle of pasada in it with your salamis and a little bit of the salami from the year before. So that's um, we've learned that that's the way that the proper proper wogs do it. So we, we tried
1: to get involved. Um, yeah, it's good. It's good. You you mentioned earlier. The different uh, Rock Pools like to source local ingredients, but as a group, you like to connect with producers across the country that have an outstanding product that you guys like to menu. And there's a real emphasis, particularly Neil Perry, always been produce produce driven. Can you tell us what, what is the ethos at, at Rock Pool, and and what is it what what ends up on the plate?
0: Well, I mean Neil Neil's always you know if you're gonna do something you get the best of everything, you know, whether whether it's, you know, you sit on a chair in, in one of these restaurants and it's the best chair it can find, uh, you know. The pepper, the pepper mill is the best one he could possibly buy um, and that, that ethos runs right down to the produce. So um, if we think that someone has something that's, you know, better or of just of really good value for us, um, then we'll try and get it um and we'll do our we'll do as much as we can to try and ensure that we do get that product um so a lot of my job is is talking to suppliers uh new suppliers old suppliers just anyone that has anything so we get sent samples of all different types of things crazy stuff um once a week you know twice a week we'll get someone come in and say i've got this product i've got this product would you like to taste one would you like to see Um, And then we get all the sort of senior chefs together and we might do a little tasting of it and do a side-by-side comparison and then say, what's the verdict? And, you know, sometimes we, we might get to find a new product and other times uh, we, you know, say to them, well, you know, I I don't think it's as good as the product that we have here. So, um, you know, but if something ever happens to that, which does happen, um, you know, there's, there's producers that go out of business and um, you have supply chain issues. So, it's good to keep um, everyone happy, and we, we, you know, Neil always taught me: no matter who it is, you always sit down with them, give them the time of day, um, hear out what their story is about the product, and, and try some. So it's just common courtesy to do so, and we we try and have that that ethos uh, in all of the Rockpool restaurants.
1: With that emphasis on such quality produce, what do you do to it in the kitchen, and is there a pressure to keep the integrity of that high quality product? Yeah, well, I
0: mean, anyone that's eaten at Rockpool Barn Grill in particular knows that we don't really do too much to any of the food except for treat it beautifully. You know, we're, we're very fortunate we have, you know, six cool rooms and, you know, we have a fish cool room, we have two beef cool rooms, we have um, a finished product cool room, a vegetable cool room, and a dairy cool room. And so um, then we've got little charcuterie fridges. Um, and that's just the, 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 the prep side of it and then you've got service fridges so everything must live in its place in a temperature controlled environment that's suited to that product um methodical cleaning methodical everything that goes into it temperature checking Um, so you know if the fisherman's gone to the effort to catch a piece of fish and keep it absolutely perfect um, when it gets to us then we want to ensure that that's that cold chain that supply chain is perfect the whole way through Um, and then I think you can taste the difference. Well, I think most people can taste the difference. Um, if you have something that's been perfectly prepared from the time it leaves the ground or the ocean or, or gets killed to the time it goes onto the plate. And, you know, sometimes we would have people that go, do well, you just put a piece of steak on a plate with a lemon. Well, you know, where's the sauce? Where's this? And it's like, well, just try it on its own and then tell me what you think because um when, you, when you're not covering it up with a sauce or you're not doing something to it or serving it with something to mask the flavor there's nothing to hide behind so if you slightly ruin that produce with over seasoning or um under overcooking over not resting yeah, all, all the little bits and pieces that go along with cooking in particular in, in particular proteins then uh there's nothing to hide behind so you can't You can't put a little bit of extra of this on and say, well, it'll it'll balance out. Uh, There is nothing to hide behind. It's just that on a plate.
1: Neil Perry is one of the most known Australian chefs on the planet. But what's he like to work with?
0: Um, I mean, I've I've worked with him for 11 years and I think we've had two arguments uh, in 11 years and I've seen him get angry probably three times. He's very, very calm and very... He's got a very cool head about him. Uh, he's a child still, and if Neil ever listens to this, uh, he'll he'll <laughs> he'll know. But um, yeah, he's he's sixty two. Um, well, he's he's twenty one in a sixty two year old man's body, um, and he's sixty two, but he keeps very young. Uh, he still likes to joke around. He's still, uh, you know, he's still a chef in the kitchen when he comes in and and plays around. And yeah, you'd think he was twenty one with the amount of energy. Enthusiasm he puts into everything he does. Um, yeah, he's uh, he's you know he's a great role model and a great mentor to any chef. Uh, you know, he's one of the pioneers of of changing Australian cooking to be Australian cooking um, instead of copying Europe and um, and copying you know parts of, of of the world. He really put his own
1: mark on it and said, "This is what I want to do." Earlier in the year, he sort of announced a, some sort of a retirement but he seems busier than ever is, is he still uh, influential on the day-to-day runnings of the restaurant no
0: he, he's, he's pretty much out of the restaurant now um but when i say out of the restaurant he comes into the restaurant every day <laughs> um we have coffee every day almost uh we have a chat i've spoken to him twice today um from melbourne so yeah, he's still there. He just doesn't um, make any decisions really anymore or, or get involved in the day-to-day running sort of business of it. But he's there just to mentor everyone, uh, mentor everyone in the kitchen and just to be a positive sort of influence on everybody. And that's, um, that's what he is. So he's the worst at being retired ever. Like he doesn't play golf <laughs> or tennis or go swimming. He his hobby is eating and drinking wine. So he just spends his time at a Bar and Grill doing that. And then he goes down and sees Andy Evans and Spice Temple and has some dumplings and has a glass of wine and talks food and talks produce and yeah, he's constantly sending me messages about this or that or have a look at what this is. You know, he's just he's so enthusiastic about food and cooking. He just can't he can't get it out of him. I think he's just well, that's what he is. Well,
1: what's the greatest thing
0: that he's taught you? Um, probably to respect you know to care about everything I mean he's got the care philosophy which he talks about which is you know just you know care about care about your environment care about the produce um, and care about your fellow workers um, care about all those things and if you care about all those things then the guest when they come to the restaurant is already looked after because you've made an effort to care about all the things before that Um, and it's when you first hear it you sort of go it's a bit sort of you know cliche but if you actually think about it and follow to those to those steps then it really does mean that when a guest comes in they get looked after so yeah he's very much about caring for
1: every part of every part of what you're doing you've been with Rockpool bar and grill for over a decade but how did you get a start in the industry yeah i've got long service (laughs) um yeah Um, I
0: was, I used to go out and work at Flemington markets. Um, uh, my uncle has a, has a a stall out there selling the barrows at the end of the, renting them out to the people at the ends of the markets. Um, so all the fruit and veg guys would get there and to save room in your van to buy your produce, you'd rent a barrow that way you could fit an extra couple of boxes in. So he's an old Italian. Uh, I think he took one holiday in his, in his life and hated it. Um, you know, 50 years of working with one week holiday in Hawaii and he hated every single minute of it. Cause someone was, you know, the, the business was failing at home. So, uh, I worked uh, out there and just saw all this amazing produce as a, as a, as a teenager and, you know, we'd walk around and, and what's that, what's that, what's this. And, um, yeah, I just sort of started looking at produce in a different way and then started to get into cooking a little bit at home. um, and yeah, then it just sort of went into it. My my grandfather had some Airbnb like Airbnbs. My grandfather had some bed and breakfasts up in uh Queensland and used to used to um you know, have people up there in motels and I'd go and hang out in the kitchen with him sometimes and I, I just I, it sort of just fell into it really and I think I was pretty I was a terrible student at school. I like they tried to kick me out so many times. And, you know, I think chefing will take anyone, no matter how bad you are, you know, if you're the you're the scum of the earth. You can always still be a chef. Um, so you know, we get a colourful bunch of kids that have come through, and I was one of those colourful kids. You know, I was not not a very good teen. Uh, you know, always in trouble and stuff. And uh, so, yeah, chefing. They, you know, there's no, there's no. You don't need any qualifications except to have a good palate and really want to eat nice food and make nice food. So yeah, it's. Um, it's a great, great job there for anyone that's maybe fallen off the rails and
1: needs a solid, solid base for life. In the lead up to joining Rockpool, what, what was the main influences on your career as a chef?
0: Um, I think I've, I've said Angel Fernandez from, um, he, he was the chef at Catalina, um, for, for many years. And he was, uh, he was one of Neil's sort of Star apprentices um, at, from Rockpool way back in the in the nineties, and so I went and worked with Angel as an apprentice at Catalina, um, and yeah, he uh, he was working when Rockpool Bar and Grill opened in Sydney. He was working there and said, "Oh, would you like to come along?" And at the time, I was uh, I'd been working up at um, Hayman Island and with Peter Carveda and Flying Fish, and uh, yeah, he Angel asked if I wanted to come, and Angel taught me. So many things about food that I thought, yeah, I'm going to come back because you know he was just such a pleasure to work for. He he really taught me about eating. Angel had the most. Uh, he just he could not like if something would come in and it was, you know, beautiful. He would eat it straight away. There was no, there was, he just like bang. I'm, I'm eating that. I can't. I can't serve that to someone. I need to eat it myself. I remember, like catching him in the cool room, just smashing cheese or eating this. So he just used to eat and eat and eat, and he'd teach everyone why would you serve that? You know, that's not something you want to eat. Eat it. Tell me what it's like. Talk to me about what it tastes like. So he was very, very big on eating, uh, and so we tried to, yeah, I love, I love that that spirit of his. He wasn't out to try and make the the world's most you know fancy food or reinvent anything. He just wanted everything he's put onto a plate to taste delicious yeah he's down in Melbourne too he's just come back from New York so I'm gonna try and catch up with him while he's here um and then you know Neil Neil Perry as well is just a, a great influence and, and Neil taught Angel so it's the same sort of philosophies and you know Angel got them from Neil pretty much um and Peter Curavita who I worked for for a while was a, a very 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 astute businessman um and very very good in the kitchen um just yeah an absolute i remember him sort of telling me if you're going to work for someone make them money um you know it's a lot of chefs cook for ego out there um and a lot of chefs you know cook to you know win awards or try and recreate something and think forget sometimes that they're cooking for guests who are paying to eat there and you know if you don't have guests in your restaurant then you're not paying the bills and if you're you know if you're a If you own your own restaurant, then you'll find very, very quickly that you need to pay those bills. And if you're working for someone and they own the restaurant and, you know, you don't have customers because you're cooking for your ego, then it's not a good, good spot to be in. Um, So Peter Kravita taught me very early on that if you're cooking, you need to make money for your owners uh, or, you know, because one day if you want your own restaurant, you need to make money for yourself. And, And I mean, that's very Evident now, there's probably a lot of restaurants that, you know, after COVID, um, you know, won't, won't come back because, you know, they maybe weren't really making that much money. Um, and it's a hard game. The margins are so tight. If you said to anyone, you know, invest this much money for this much return, no one would do it. You really have to love doing it. Um, but at the
1: same time, you, you have to pay bills. So you've traveled the world. Uh, with Neil for, uh, on behalf of the Rockpool group what's what's some of the most amazing experiences that you've had
0: um well last year i told daniel blue that he was looking a bit old and he punched me in the stomach that was, pre- that was pretty funny <laughs> um but yeah i mean stuff like that i I sort of take for granted sometimes when i when i used to travel and do things particularly now um you know now I'm the highlight's going to melbourne but um yeah, you know, working with some of those chefs over in the States was has been unbelievable and, um, you know, in Singapore as well when we go over and do the Grand Prix, you know, you get to rub rub shoulders with some of the world's elite people and, um, you know, I, I, I'm humbled by it um, a lot and it's, um, yeah, I have to, I'll have look back and, and think I should have probably taken photos and, and selfies with all these famous chefs that I've worked with around the world but I never did. Um, yeah, it's a yeah i feel very privileged and also you know when neil used to do the big um, charity events for for the starlight foundation when we'd have you know the lights of the likes of you know granic Cats come and um heston blumenthal and you know thomas keller um you know cooking alongside a team like that you know andoni from Mugaritz you know standing there and having him explain his dish to you um and taking you through the journey of it with his chefs and uh you know those those things are pretty pretty special. Um, it's yeah, it's it's nice when you go overseas and you get to to, to do that, or even when we do it here. Um, I think yeah, the last one we did was in New York with with Daniel Baloo, and um, it was yeah, some some very very talented chefs that were working alongside there, and I think Daniel had one from each continent. So um, yeah, it was it was great, and you know, hanging out in this beautiful kitchen in New York with all these you know. Great chefs and drinking some amazing wine, so I'm, I'm very privileged. And you know, when I think about it, you know, being a scumbag teenager uh, with no education that got kicked out of school pretty much to um to you know drinking thousand dollar bottles of Burgundy in New York, uh, it's um
1: it's, it's a nice it's a nice thing to do. Well, you even uh, cooked prawns on the rooftop of a building overlooking New York uh, with Neil? Can you tell us about that. I did. I got a sunburned head. <laughs> yeah, that was for the um for the
0: world's fifty best. Um, I remember, um, I was up on the rooftop of the Nomad Hotel, which is Daniel Daniel Hum's um uh, restaurant that he has. He's got the two over there with Madison and that one. And uh, I did a we did a rooftop barbecue with with Peter Gilmore and um with Ben Truery and, and a couple of the other and Dan Hunter and it was uh it was it was good. We um we're all up on the roof there um cooking and i was in the sun cooking prawns on a barbecue drinking a cooper's um tourism australia are like very keen on getting some photos of the chef on the on the on the rooftop but it was 30 degrees it was sunny and you know the empire state buildings in the background um but i had to ask for some sun cream because i'm bald and i've got no hair uh, so my head was like this bright red thing you know was just, i was drinking this cooper's and cooking these prawns and um yeah, it was great. All the, all the you know, the, the sort of top 20 chefs all got invited, hung over to come up and have this Australian breakfast on the balcony. Um, and, you know, so they all walked up and were, you know, having a chat with, with us and um, it was great. They were like, wow, I'm with the Australian chefs and we're, you know, we're having, you know, prawns on a barbecue and, and a beer for breakfast. Is this what you guys do in Australia? I'm like, yeah, once a week, you know, that's, that's how we live. You know, Sunday mornings, it's they fire up the barbecue, have a prawn and smash a beer. Um, so yeah, we, we laid it on for them. Uh, I think the year after we had the, the world's 50 best restaurant awards in, in, um, in Melbourne. So yeah, it was good going down for that as well. And we did the, we did the food for that. Uh, we did the catering for that, uh, you know, for all the best chefs in the world again. And, uh, I had a lot of good chats with a lot of the, the chefs there and I've met, met some very nice uh, chefs from some of the best restaurants in the world and become friends with them. And it's very handy if I can ever get back overseas. <laughs> it's nice. Um, you know giving them a buzz and saying oh hi it's Corey from Australia we met a few years ago and we did that event so it's very nice when you go into someone else's restaurant too in their country and they show you how hospitable they can be.
1: You mentioned a little earlier that when you get whole pigs in at Rockpool you break them down and you make charcuterie but you keep some of it for dishes as well could you tell us about the sort of dishes that star on the menu utilizing that?
0: Yeah, well, the, um, the we do like a little pork chop at the moment with uh, with a loin. Um, we do it with some some whey that we make from the goats. We get lots of whey. We're always trying to think of things we can do with whey because um, we have so much of it from the goats goats cheese that we make. Um, so we do a little whey caramel or reduce it all down and with black pepper and curry leaves. Um, with the pork chop. Uh, we have a squid squid and pork belly dish where we cook the pork belly for twelve hours and then it gets fired into a charcoal oven at 500 degrees so it gets you know sort of nice and colored up um and then with some roasted red onions and uh the pork belly and the squid to being an old favorite um we have the smoked ham that we we do a little ham plate with some pine garner two-year-aged cheddar um two-year-old aged um cheddar so it's just the ham and the and the and the pine garner cheese which they especially uh put aside for us um another one of those great things that we're lucky to be able to buy a whole wheel of their cheese for um that they don't sell to anyone else um yeah so those those things are all nice and then we do the the sausages as i said before the chorizos which we used to make a hot dog which i loved but they weren't very good for you i used to smash one of those hot dogs oh that was that was so good um we still make the sausages but we use them for a dish now but we don't have the hot dog on the on the menu anymore in the bar but i put it back on when I get back home. It's damn tasty. So, yeah, I mean, the sausage making is one of those, um, you know, if we don't have the sausages on the menu, we have people complain and ask for them to come back. Um, We use the same sausage uh, filling uh, for little sausage rolls that we make, which I make at home on the weekends as well with the pork. So I made some of them for the kids on the weekend. They were great. We throw some pistachios through there and some fennel seeds on top of the puff. And, uh, yeah, my sausage roll making skills are pretty good now it's good
1: don't mind the sausage roll we're we're heading towards christmas and uh you do like to have a gathering with friends and and feed a lot of people um do you do you have any sort of go-to dishes for christmas and are you a kind of a baker ham sort of person or do you prefer it to be in the fridge and just cut it off when you want some
0: Uh, in the fridge in the fridge and cut it off yeah definitely in the fridge and cut it off and just You know, for those days after Christmas, you know, you you get to that point where you just walk into the fridge and, you know, you just hack a big piece off and walk around the house eating it. Uh, You know, you get to that point point of, uh, and then you get hammed out at about, you know, sort of the 12th, 13th of January. It's about that point where you're like, that's it. I'm I'm done with your ham. Can't do any more. Yeah, which is, uh, it's hard to well for us. But we, um for for our our guests at Rockpool Bar and Grill, um, that are, you know, sort of the top 20 people that we have that come into the restaurant. So we have we have a very loyal following, you know, people that come in three or four times a week for lunch or dinner. Um, and so we've got this list of people that, that come in a lot of times um, and we give them a Christmas ham as a gift that we make. So we make um, hams. We've already started making the hams. We make about four a week. Um, and, yeah, we just do half hams for them. And then on, uh, we let them know sort of a week before Christmas that we will we'll be giving them a little Chrissy present of a of a ham, and uh, they all very much appreciate it. And it's a sort of like a badge of honor, um, you know. Come and spend a hundred thousand dollars over the course of a year, and we'll give you a ham. <laughs> um, so, um, but it's that it is very nice, and you know they're they're great customers. Um, yeah, and they, they love getting the hams, and they they tell me you know the ham lasted me all the way up until this point or this point. So. Yeah, I I love doing a ham. I always do a crackling, crackling pork belly or a, um, a loin. I like probably the belly more than the loin. The loin um, is nice, but I like the fattiness of the belly. And so, yeah, nice nice crackling pork belly on Christmas Day, and it's, that's the only thing I pretty much do hot. And the rest of it, you know, that usual prawns and and ham and a swim. And um, when we're done with the ham bone, I, I that means it's time to go fishing because we always use the hand bone and chuck it into some crab nets and then take it up to um, pit water and try and catch some blue swimmers with the, with the hand bones. Um, Best, best, best bait out there you'll find is a smoked hand bone. You're guaranteed to get a blue swimmer. Actually, no, that's not true. No one go up and go to the hall and go, go anywhere near pit water. Yeah. And don't check my crab pots either.
1: Amazing. (laughs) Steal my crab. Well, mate, I, um, I'm, I'm with you exactly on the ha- ham in the fridge um, over Christmas. I like to hack a piece off at any time of day. And and I also don't mind the, the beer for breakfast theory. I might introduce that into our family over the summer. I'm sure that'll go down well. Yeah, yeah. Prawns and beer <laughs> for breakfast is perfect. <laughs> uh, Corey, we've loved having you on The Crackling, mate. You're a bloody legend. Um, keep in touch and we'll talk again soon. Hey, thanks for the chat, mate. It's been great. This is The Crackling. A Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.